0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Know the Show, our musical theater podcast where we deep dive into classic musicals one at a time. I am Michael Fling, the artistic associate at Goodspeed Musicals, and I'm thrilled to be joined by my Mary Murderess, the only one that I would acquit of murder, Annika Chapin, Signature Theaters, director of artistic development. Hi, Annika.
1: Hi, Michael. I was wondering where you would go with that, and now I'm now it's good to know you'll cover for me if I commit a crime.
0: I absolutely would cover for you if you committed a crime like I you would count to me as a bury the body friend as Brene Brown likes to say like Aww. I would I you call and like you need to bury the body great where am I meeting you like oh, thanks. off the record I would do it I
1: would well just to be thematic it would be a it would be a sexy jazzy crime
0: you are all about a sexy jazzy crime I will say like if you were going to commit a crime absolutely there's like a bootlegger involved I, oh. I sense that for you I sense that for you
1: Thanks. Thanks. I'll take that as a compliment very much. So why don't you remind
0: us of the clue about this show that we'll be getting to know this episode?
1: Yes. Well, the clue was that this show is based on uh, the real stories of two women named Beulah and Belva. And those two women, which we'll talk about a little bit later, became the characters Roxy Hart and Velma Kelly in Chicago.
0: Well, I which I before we even get into the actual details of the show, uh, I think it's worth letting the listeners know that both of us forgot what the clue was that we gave for the last episode and <laughs> spent a long time being like, Wait, so we said that, but what was the I literally spent 48 hours being like, Wait, what show do we say we're doing? I can't even remember. Cause we decide literally as we're recording the the episode. So a little behind the scenes fun. But yeah, we, um, s- we stumped ourselves. We stumped ourselves. Um so yeah, Chicago with a book by Fred Ebb and Bob Fossey. Music by John Kander, and lyrics by Fred Ebb.
1: Classique.
0: A pretty, like, 70s trio. This show really, like, embody like, there's something about those three that, like, embody 70s musical theater. Or, like, at least iconic in a weird way. Like, they they are, like, the power trio of the 70s.
1: Yeah, and it's funny, actually, I haven't thought about that until right this very minute. But I do feel like, if you look at the, like, dominant writers of different decades... it 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 does feel like it fits and i feel like there's something very like like the kind of dirty sexiness of the 70s is very well represented by candor and ebb and bob fossey they all have that kind of like ooh, it's a little bit it's a little bit naughty and it's a little bit dark and it's a little bit seedy and it's a little bit sexy sexy
0: and yet still very much rooted in, like, a past version of musical theater. You know what I mean? Like, totally. That's what I, it was so interesting about it to me as, like, what we get into it in this episode. Like, there, why we think of, I think of Bob Fosse as, like, boundary pushing and all these things. Like, he is so much rooted in the traditions of musical theater and musical comedy in so many ways. He just has a different point of view on it that was not, that was individual.
1: Definitely. And Kendra Ebb, I mean those are some of the greatest songs ever written for a musical theater and the and maybe I would say the best vamps I think oh
0: the yes. best vamps I yeah. feel like we talked about this at one point maybe that was on one of the maybe that was in one of the tournaments I think you've said that before but I do I forgot that I agree completely they are like kings of the vamp
1: yeah with uh with an with a sort of honorable mention for Andrew Lloyd Webber's uh, killer vamp in uh, Heaven on Their Minds.
0: <laughs> well, oh, that's true. That's true.
1: Bonka, 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 bonka.
0: Come on. That's good. It's good stuff. All right. So with that, I think it's time for the speed test. Hudson's
1: 4 cool wax doesn't matter. Hudson's
0: 4X cool doesn't, 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 cool
1: doesn't
2: matter.
0: Hudson's 4 cool doesn't matter. Hudson's 4 doesn't matter. Where I do my best to summarize the plot of Chicago in less than a minute. Um, I think I'll do okay. Famous last yeah, I- words. This I- one I- feels fine to me
1: i think so i think so but again yes who knows when we're confident we're not but i think i like
0: i like forget that we do this segment every time and that's probably the exact correct way to be doing the segment is to forget that we do it
1: (laughs) yes and i too forget as i always have to scramble for my phone to actually set the timer Uh, every time yeah all right um pop six cicero
0: go I was hoping you would do that for the countdown. Okay, so um, we've got Roxy Hart. She murders her um, she murders Fred Casely, who's like her lover and slash furniture salesman, tries to get um, her husband Amos to cover for her. He doesn't, and so she goes to prison uh, where she meets Velma Kelly, who has also killed her sister and um, husband. Um, and so basically it's all about how she wants to get off for this crime. And she hires, uh, she manages to get the attention of, um, um, oh my God, why am I suddenly blanking on his name? Oh my God, this is so embarrassing. No, Billy no, Flynn. no, don't, don't, Billy Flynn. Oh my God, I'm so embarrassed. Okay, Billy Flynn, um, who's like this amazing uh, defense attorney to represent her, and she becomes a celebrity murderess, and he kind of elevates her case in the press and all this stuff, and, uh, she eventually gets off for murder, um, but wants to be a star, and then hooks up with Val Kelly, and they have, like, their post-prison, like vaudeville duo
1: great i mean that's one minute and one second
0: basically what happens i mean i didn't really get into a lot of the plot details but that's the the summary of events
1: i think so and it's in the 20s in chicago uh famously and uh yeah i think that's good there's not a ton of plot in
0: the show but as we're talking about so much of the score are really like plot songs that are really like They don't feel like plot songs, which is really kind of the mastery, I think, of this particular score. It's like they're all bops. It's such a strong score, but it does kind of like lead you. I mean, they're all vaudeville set numbers. But like when you start to really dig into it, like they're all talking about details of the story and or details of a particular event in in an interesting way.
1: Yeah, this is definitely this was a really interesting one to read the script because it is very tight. I mean, it is so like effective everything that's in there is really just like exactly what you need and and i and i found that the way that the scenes and the numbers interact with each other is very clever uh, and very smart so it's a really well-constructed show i think more than i i mean i i like this show but i i wouldn't have necessarily thought that as strongly as i did before after i read the script
0: which I think is a great, it's a great point. And then we'll get into it later with the, because that is kind of the mo- the, the mantra of the show in so many ways is like, it's a forgotten, a weirdly forgotten and like looked over fantastic piece that like is obviously still on Broadway and has been running forever, but kind of weirdly doesn't exist in a lot of theater people's minds as much as it does in like the public mind as what a representation of Broadway is, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, well, I, I mean, that was interesting too, because I feel like when Encores began, it, you know, and the intention was to do these shows that really were sort of almost forgotten um, or not done very often. Like Chicago was in like what the second year that they did it, um, yeah. And 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 it's so interesting now that this show has become this like juggernaut. You know, one of the longest running shows on Broadway, um, if not the longest. Like it is, it is such a mega hit now. To think of it before this revival, when it was kind of like a sort of much more not acknowledged um, part of the canon than, than now it is like a dominant part of the canon. So kind of interesting when that happens where something needs to have a second life in order to kind of really flourish. Well, that'll take us to Why God, Why.
2: Why
0: God,
1: why today?
0: Where we talk about the show's big idea, what the authors want to say and what's driving the narrative. So I think it's a great transition point because I was going to say this one is uh, a little different than I approach this one a little differently than I would others because I'm going to have like two answers because typically I think about like what's uniting all the characters and all the characters want like attention and recognition for what they do. That's really like the unifying amount of all of the characters I think literally every single person is like pay attention to me pay attention to me this is what I am this is what I do blah 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 blah. which is very like vaudevillian in its own like way which is is very smart talk about like content dictates form I think they did a brilliant job with that in this piece that is like not talked about as much as it probably should be but the overall kind of like theme that's like really the author's point and certainly Bob Fossey's point is like this corruption of the judicial system and the press and like America. It's a very like cynical take on American society. So like both of the and that and that is a very American thing to like want attention and recognition and all that stuff. But Annika, what would you say is this show's organizing organizing principle?
1: Yeah, I mean, certainly everything you said, like it is it is a really biting, biting uh commentary on america and the american dream i think and you know not that i want to relate everything to assassins but i always want to relate everything to assassins i think it has a lot you know there's a lot of overlap there with the same idea of like just how built into the american dream the idea of fame is in really kind of like gross ways frankly like that 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 fame is its own reward um, no matter how you get fame or how you keep fame or or what you do with it it's sort of like it is it is the end um that that so many people strive for um so I think that certainly is that so yes America yes corruption certainly the judicial system the press um I mean this one's interesting for me because you know I always kind of go back to the protagonist and what does the protagonist want and this is an interesting one because, I mean, Roxy's very clearly wants one thing, which is fame. <laughs>
0: as, right, as, right. As we, as and, like notori- and she'll accept and notoriety. notoriety. Yeah. Right, yeah. like she'll accept notoriety, but she wants she fame. She
1: wants to be a star, you know. Um, and and she gets that. Um, and she kind of gets to keep that. And but I, but I don't think that that is entirely, like, I don't think the show is so simple, really, because I think part of what's really interesting to me about this show, and we'll probably talk about this more, but is that she is pretty despicable. Like you are really not on board with like these, a lot of these characters are just not likable Um, in the traditional ways. And I think the, the way that the show plays with that and still makes you kind of like, I'm not going to say root for them, really, but sort of root for them, even while you're like, I don't know, maybe you should go to prison. <laughs> like,
0: well, I mean, but know? that's like it's the it's the strength of the score, I'd say, because like they all have great like charm numbers and great all these numbers that kind of make you fall in love with them. But like, yeah, by book scene by book scene standard, like they're terrible. They're just yeah. terrible. And I I have to imagine that like part of at least the original production like part of its success or why it was crafted that way is because like jerry orbach cheetah rivera and Gwyn Verdon were all so naturally likable and yeah. like personalities that like it papered over a certain thing but it is interesting as we as we look at the show obviously without them like what that i think you're exactly right like we were laughing before we started recording the like the end of the opening number and like you know she kills Fred Casely and then she's like I gotta pee and right. that's like what like that's not that that means you're unlikable but it's it's like that kind of bodiness that like is actually at the heart of a lot of the choices in the show
1: yeah they do not shy away from from that kind of stuff about like the, the darkness in there and the, the other thing actually that I think that I should mention too is I think that there's a sneaky second um want not even known to the protagonist that I think actually is what you as an audience member respond to which is that um, connection it's connection again Um, also very Sondheimian whereas you know I think if the show ended in a different way um, it it would not be as satisfying but the fact that we're seeing these two women kind of bond oddly enough even though they still sort of hate each other um, it's it's great. I mean, it's sort of like, it's interesting. It made me think a little bit of Wicked and the sort of like that there's something so fundamentally satisfying about two people who do not like each other, become friends with each other. Um, despite it, it's, it's just something that we, it's just viscerally satisfying as an audience member, I think. So I think that the the friendship of Elma and, and Roxy is uh, also kind of sneakily in there too.
0: So, Anika, why don't you take us back to before and tell us about the origins of Chicago?
1: We can never go back
2: to before.
1: So this is so fascinating to me because I had no idea that the backstory of Chicago was so based in reality. It really is based on uh, many, I mean, many layers of things. But at its heart, it's based on two criminals and two crimes Um, So basically in Chicago in the 20s, there were a lot of celebrity crimes, basically, especially a lot of focus on crimes committed by women uh, to the point where it was said that if you were basically a hot woman, you couldn't get convicted in Chicago because there were all these women who were killing uh, mostly men and were just getting acquitted. And this was like the media thing of the time. So that is all accurate. That is all an accurate portrait of this time. But also, there were two specific uh, crimes and criminals that uh, might sound a little bit familiar to you in the, in the details of their story. So the first one was named Beulah May Sheriff, who in 1924 shot her lover to death when she was 23 years old. Uh, she was married to an auto mechanic named Albert Annan, um, just says Amos is a mechanic and I'm just going to quote this because I just love this, this piece of this so much, um, According to her initial story, they had been drinking wine, which her lover had brought over, and they got into an argument. There was a gun on the bed, and both reached for it, but Beulah got it first and shot her lover while he was putting on his coat and hat. She played a Foxtrot record, hula Loo, over and over for about four hours as she sat drinking cocktails and watching her lover die. She then called her husband to say that she had killed a man who had tried to make love to her. So, that Honestly, is...
0: honestly, iconic honestly i I mean
1: i mean just of course there has to be a show about that yeah
0: write a musical
1: yeah exactly yeah um and also like uh, similar to amos uh her husband, this poor guy basically bankrupted himself to pay for her defense and the day she was acquitted she left him and said to the to press that he was too slow so just ice cold there ice cold ice cold
0: and we think roxy's terrible i mean roxy is terrible but that's pretty (laughs) cold-hearted
1: it's i mean it's funny that it's so much based in the reality of it right it feels like so dramatic you wouldn't think that all of those details would be pulled pulled from a real thing but that's what happened wild yeah so that was obviously turned into roxy Hart. that's the inspiration there and the other one who became Velma was named belva gartner and she was a three-time society divorcee and a cabaret singer who had shot her married lover dead in a car and uh, was acquitted for it, as was uh, Beulah. And Belva Gardner blamed a lifestyle of guns and gin. So similar to Velma, this idea that like the this corrupting lifestyle was responsible for making her do this thing. Um, and one detail that I really love about her life is that she eventually moved in with her sister and lived until she was 80 years old. Uh, but I love that Bel- in both stories, Velma and Belva, like the sister plays a f- plays a role. But um, luckily, Belva's sister had a happier fate than Velma's, who obviously uh, does not survive. So these were two of these uh, crimes and criminals in Chicago in the 20s. And there was a reporter named Maureen Dallas Watkins who had wanted to be a playwright and been told by a playwriting professor that she should go out and and do things uh, to find stories to write about for her plays. And so she was a reporter for the Chicago Tribune and she covered these crimes as well as many other crimes at the Times. And it's interesting because uh, her paper, the Tribune, tended to be on the prosecution side, a little bit more cynical about these women and about these trials. But the competitive Hearst papers tended to side with the accused. And there were several female reporters who earned the title sob sisters for portraying the accused women with like overblown sympathy and, you know, really exaggerating the details of their life that made them sympathetic, um, which also features in the show. So Maureen Dallas Watkins turned her columns about Beulah May Sheriff and Belva Gartner into a play, which she called Chicago. Beulah became Roxy, Albert, and then her husband became Amos. Belva became Velma. Uh, they they had different lawyers. They didn't have the same lawyer, but they were both equally slick. And they morphed into Billy Flynn. And the competing reporters became Saab's sister, sob Sister Mary Sunshine. So a lot of uh, facts from reality turn into this play. The play was produced on Broadway in 1926 and was successful with critics and audiences. And then in 1927, Cecil B. DeMille produced a silent film version of the play. Um, And then in 1942, there was a non-silent film version uh, called Roxy Hart, starring Ginger Rogers as Roxy. Although uh, one fact I love about this is that because Hollywood's content restrictions were so intense at the time, in that version, uh, Roxy didn't actually commit the crime. Uh, which I love because that is such a key part of the story and any other version of it. So who knew, really? I mean, it's we have a real crimes, real women turned into Roxy and Velma um, by a female playwright, which I uh, love that. And so once this film version was made, I'm going to turn it over to Michael Flynn to tell us a little bit more about how that became the musicale we know and love.
0: Um, So that brings us to putting it together Bit by bit, putting it together Piece by piece, only way to make a work of art Where we talk about how the show was literally put together So Gwen Verdon wanted to play Roxy Hart Like ever since she saw the movie starring Ginger Rogers That um, Annika just mentioned And she continually pressured her husband slash partner Bob Fosse uh, To turn the play into a musical as a vehicle for her if you watched the um, FX show Fossey Burden a few years back or recently, um, it becomes a, a large kind of recurring thing. She's like, when are we going to do Chicago? I want to do Chicago. It's like this thing that she like keeps, keeps harping on. Um, so they tried throughout the 60s to get the rights and couldn't get Watkins to agree um, to actually hand over the rights. And there's a lot of speculation that it was because Watkins felt bad about like kind of glamorizing that life a little bit. Um, and so she like didn't want it to to be perpetuated, but that's all speculation. There's not really like, I don't think she ever said like, no, um, that's exactly why she just like didn't ever sign over the rights. Um, but then she died, may she rest in peace, um, and her estate let them have the rights. So um, ultimately, Verdon and Fossey, um, you know, had split up by the time that they got um, Chicago going, um and Fosse really considered the project his gift to gwen and it really i mean it was a gift her contract was insane and i don't know if we can really call it unprecedented but like it gave her a huge piece of the profits uh, a guarantee that her name would be as large as the title and approval over all creative elements of the show like literally every single creative element so if she didn't like a bit of the casting it wasn't going to happen if she didn't like a bit of the choreography it wasn't going to happen if she didn't like i mean literally every single thing a song like anything 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 um and someone when i was reading about it like made the joke that like yeah whatever lola wants lola gets and i was like that's a great (laughs) that's a great little like you know uh great way to sum it up lola got what lola wanted So for those of you who maybe don't understand uh, Gwen Burton partially one of her like big roles was Lola and Dame Yankees. And that was like the project that brought the two of them together in the first place, I think. Right. Um, So anyhow. Um, So uh, there was a collective decision to frame the entire thing as a vaudeville, um, a vaudeville spectacle of sorts and have um, a particular vaudeville performer um, or genre inspire every single number to underscore uh the show business like aspect of creating a celebrity trial and the judicial judicial system in general and american society and obsession with crime uh so kander and ebb um who had just collaborated with fossey on the film of cabaret um finish a score or a first draft of the score by the end of like 1973 they go into the into rehearsal in the fall of 1974 Um, And after completing a week, um, one week of like pre-production dance work, um, like on all that jazz, particularly, I think, um, Fosse is at a read through of the show on the first day of rehearsal the next week um, and isn't feeling great. He goes to the doctor at the lunch break and never comes back to rehearsal because he's sent to the hospital, ultimately to have a cardiac bypass surgery, um, which essentially put the show on pause for four months. Uh, so and then I read. In order to keep the cast committed to the project, the producers even got them temporary day jobs while Fosse recovered, um just so they like wouldn't abandon the show. um And That's Gwen amazing. Verdon isn't that amazing? And like Gwen Verdon really acts as like mother hen to the whole group, and is like because it's her like baby project. She's wanted to do it forever, and like it just has roadblock after roadblock after roadblock. um So everyone, so Fosse comes back. Like I think it's like March of 1975. Um, and his outlook on life and everything is like even more bleak than it was prior <laughs> to the medical incident. Um, and he really like didn't want any kind of sentimentality in the show um and insisted on highlighting the corruption at the center of the story. So um, some of the fun like details of the show. So the original staging of Razzle Dazzle was an orgy on the steps outside of the courthouse. Um, and Fossey reluctantly agreed to change it after the producers and Jerry Arbach were like, maybe not. Uh so fun. Uh, just fun to imagine a fossey orgy on the steps of a of a courthouse. Um so they try out the show in Philadelphia and it's a very rough tryout. Uh they cut an entire character who was Velma's press agent and also served as kind of an MC throughout the show. Um even though his number 10% was well received by audiences. Creative team determined he and Mama Morton were too close in style as characters and ultimately had less, and he had less to do with the story ultimately. So they cut him and instead wrote the Sophie Tuckert inspired number when you're good to mama for Mama Morton to offset cutting 10%, which was a real cl- a crowd pleaser. So there was also a barbershop quartet in the show um, who had two numbers uh one of which was no 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 um and underscored roxy trying to get amos to pay for her legal defense uh and pansy eyes which was a number where Ro- roxy posed for a bunch of ridiculously saccharine pictures to sweeten her image um like took a, group, a picture with a group of nuns like an injured child and like a puppy like ridiculous uh all orchestrated of course by billy flynn so um Arguably the biggest and most consequential change was the finale of the show. Originally, uh, Velma and Roxy sang a song called Loop in the Loop, where um, they played drums and sax, uh, respectively, and then a number called It. Uh, and apparently uh, it came off a bit like an amateur act. And so um, Fosse wanted something more glamorous. So Kander and Neb, um, who had been kind of fighting with Fosse like the whole time during rehearsal, it was not a very happy process, Um, went back to their hotel and wrote Nowadays, which Fosse loved, and um, their earlier kind of tiff seemed to be healed. Uh, Meanwhile, Peter Howard, who was the rehearsal pianist and ultimately, I think, gets credited as the dance arranger, composed uh, a dance number that segued out of Nowadays um, over the chords of Funny Honey, uh, the song that Roxy sings earlier in the show, and that became known as the hot honey rag, which closed out the show. And is, of course now incredibly famous and infamous. Um, but there was a bit of uh, controversy around the number because uh, when Gwen really wanted a final number for Roxy, that was a bit like Rose's turn and gypsy. That kind of was this like, Oh, you know, what have I done? Turning over a new leaf kind of like 11 o'clock number. Um, and wanted like nowadays to be that number. and. Fosse kind of awkwardly insisted that it be a duet for both of them. Uh, And even, like, everybody around, like, there's a, this scene is depicted in Fosse Burden, but it's also in the biography of Fosse that the show is based on, um, where, like, you know, uh, like, Cheetah Rivera and John Kander and Fred Ebb are, like, all in this rehearsal. And Gwen's, like, practically in tears because she wants this number for herself, and Fossey just, like, won't give it to her and, like, kind of tortures her. And they're all like, just give her the number. Like, it's fine. Um, but he's stuck to his guns. And nobody's really quite sure why they think it might have been his weird, like, power-hungry, kind of sadomasochistic thing that he is a bit, you know, infamous for. Um, but anyway, probably the right call. I mean, it it, it obviously it, it becomes a huge hit based on the way it's structured. Um you know, yeah now. so it's a but it's a weird like thing um yeah it's a weird it's a weird kind of conclusion to the entire like very frustrating process that like Gwen is kind of the the spine of the entire project and then like she doesn't get the one thing that it seems like she really advocated for
1: yeah but I mean I can't really wrap my head around the idea of, of this show having any sort of redemption for that character i mean like even rose's turn is not really like what have i done it's sort of like a no right (laughs) damn it i was right the whole time
0: which probably i mean makes sense when you frame it that way it makes sense because like he didn't want any of that in the show and that's so that's probably why but it's anyway it's a fascinating fascinating yeah so interesting it does get to broadway um and gets kind of tepid reviews a lot of critics thought it was way too cynical And it didn't help that Chorus Line had opened at the public like right before Chicago opened on Broadway. And Chorus Line, of course, a mega sensation. We've talked about it uh, in a great episode of the program. Um, And so uh, Chicago is nominated for like 11 Tonys, wins none of them, um, and didn't really do too well off the bat. um, And then Gwen Verdon had to undergo vocal surgery for nodes she developed after swallowing a feather in this like new finale, which I think is just like all the more, I mean, crazy just to think of like how much that number clearly holds in her psyche. Um, so in her stead, while she was out for vocal surgery, Liza Minnelli went into the show for a little over a month and brought more life into the show, a whole like press thing around it. And, uh, the show managed to run for a respectable two years, which is funny that we think of it as like basically a forgotten show Um, because it did, like, run for a substantial amount of time, but it really did kind of fall out of the public consciousness Um, until Encores, uh, which, uh, as Annika alluded to, uh, a concert series at City Center that is very beloved, but at the time, in, like, 96, I think it was, um, or 95, 96, somewhere in there, was um, brand fake and new and for their like second season um they decided to do chicago as one of the shows and i was reading the liner notes of the revival um the revival album and um friend of the program uh billy rosenfeld um wrote the program notes and was like it was kind of controversial that they picked chicago at first because it was a show that was only like 20 years old and a lot of people still remember that original production and like, this isn't really what Encores is supposed to be. Um, but they ad- adapted the script slightly by um, David Thompson and uh, it was a massive hit. It just did like gangbusters at Encores. And so after a bidding war, um, the Weislers get the rights and transfer to Broadway where it has played ever since um, and was choreographed by Anne Ryan King in the style of Bob Fosse with um in some ways like it's it's like quintessential what we imagine Fosse to be it has kind of like taken over in that way like it is just like it's synonymous with him in a way that that original production wasn't even um and I think even more solidified by like the sexy kind of marketing campaign that turned Chicago into like the hot ticket in town a lot like we talked about the marketing campaign of Rent like mattering a lot to that show I think chicago's marketing campaign really mattered to it and continues to matter in the like zeitgeist when it comes to the show um yeah yeah so that's the brief history not so brief history of chicago
1: yeah i know it's a glittering giga hit
0: well and of course like turned into a movie um that is a very celebrated movie that i think also plays into its kind of you know quintessential broadway nature um, or falling into the category of, you know, major Broadway hit, like the movie really um, wins best picture and is Rob Marshall's big movie debut. And kind of, I think it's a lot of credit for like, uh, like reviving the movie musical as like a thing, even though like Milan Rouge had done it a year prior, but we don't have to get into that. Um, but it's a great movie adaptation, I think um, different from the show. And we'll get into that, but, um, but yeah.
1: Yeah. And and the revival did win some Tonys in a way that the original one did not um, and just was very successful. And I, I saying, saw the encores. I'm uh, i proud to say.
0: Of course you did. And uh, I yeah, I did not see the encores. But yeah, it's critically celebrated as like a show ahead of its time and all these things. So it does it gets it's just desserts, I guess, as they say.
1: Yeah. Although also, I think, you know, um, Credit to William Ivy Long, who did the costumes, even though he's a controversial figure now. But, like, the when Encores stripped it back to that kind of like not, I mean, this is what they did originally. I mean, it's hard to remember now because they're so fully realized and fully costumed. But in originally, like, they would wear kind of evening looks basically for these shows. It was, it was intent, it was much more of a concert than it was of a fully staged thing and and having all those dancers in the kind of non twenty specific black um leotards and dancewear i think gave the show also a real identity beyond what the original looked like which was much more kind of like 1920s like stockings and um flapper kind of looks so credit where it's due there to uh to just like put its stamp visually on it
0: And with that, Annika, why don't you take us into the words and show us what's inside Mr. Cellophane.
2: What's inside? Everyone wants to know what's inside.
1: All right, so let's dive into one of the most heartbreaking and sweet and funny songs in this score. Uh, The much beloved and for good reason, Mr. Cellophane. This is the number for Roxy's husband, Amos, who is very mild-mannered and uh in love with her and uh very i think we can just say weak he's just weak he's he's very sweet but uh cannot compete in this dog eat dog world um of cutting cynical people he's very sweet and a little bit dumb and just doesn't doesn't really get it um so roxy has uh Announces she's she was pregnant. And so the top of the second act is her big number, me and my baby. And Amos who thinks this baby is his child has gone around saying, I'm the father and nobody cares at all. So this is the number that he sings in response to that. And in response to Billy Flynn, um, halfway through the scene, sort of pointing out that this can't be his child. Um, and, Billy Flynn never remembers his name. I mean, there's just like so many good moments in the show to prove just how forgettable and kind of sad sack Amos is. Um, So this song is really the perfect illustration of that. And it is uh, the second number in the second act, uh, I think I mentioned. So it kind of comes in a... A little, it's like you don't really expect him to have this number, which is is another way that the show kind of plays with you and puts you in that sort of place of the audience um, for these trials as well. Like the fact that Amos sings is you're like, oh, nice. You know, it's it's a little bit meta in that way. Um, all right, so I'm going to do something slightly different with this song than I normally do. Um, as Michael mentioned, the the show was really written as a pastiche of different vaudevillian performers and different vaudevillian styles. Um, And as we saw with Cabaret, Kandra and Eb are very, 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 very good at this. They love doing this sort of like theatrical, presentational kind of show, which it makes for really wonderful, um, theatrical, interesting shows but also means that the music plays a very slightly different role than it often does in a more conventional musical because you're getting this, uh, heightened performative style. So it isn't only illustrating the interior feelings of the characters. It's also, um, like in the cabaret, as we saw being a cabaret number for this, for this German club, um, and here we don't have that same sort of setting. We don't really know where they are when they're performing these numbers other than being in what the script describes as limbo. Um, so it's not quite the same as like a style and place of the German cabaret, but it, but it is, a, a, something elevated from the normal kind of like straight, uh, forward illustration of the emotional setting, um. So, okay, so that being said, so if all of these songs in Chicago are referencing specific vaudevillian performers and specific vaudevillian styles and songs, this number is very specifically modeled after a performer named Bert Williams, who was a very famous vaudeville performer, one of the most famous comedians of his time, um, and very important in terms of history. I mean, He's credited as being the first Black man to have a leading role in a film, Darktown Jubilee in 1914. He was the best-selling Black recording artist before 1920 by far. Um, He was also the first Black performer in the Ziegfeld Follies. And I love this story. When white cast members protested his hiring, Ziegfeld told them, I can replace every one of you except Williams. So he was truly like extremely, extremely famous and well-known. Um, in his time. I mean, it, again, this is one of those sad things that's uh, true about these people that they really are not as well, like nobody, not nobody knows him, but he, he's he's not nearly as famous and well-known now as uh, he should be, because this is just, he was such a titan of vaudeville and of this kind of performance style. So um, as much as he was a comedian, he was also known for a mix of sort of comedy and sorrow. Uh, W.C. Field's called him the funniest man I ever saw and the saddest man I ever knew. So he has that sort of mix of things that Amos has as well, although Amos is much less overtly a comedian. Um, And it's interesting too. I mean, I, I, it's, it is notable. I think that uh, obviously Burt Williams is very famously a black performer did, did a great deal to advance, Um, representation in his time in many 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 ways Uh, it is interesting that this show has given this style and this pastiche number to a character who is not black I don't think that would be true today but um, I just wanted to to note that that he is uh, he was a black man and obviously Amos is a white character so it's kind of an interesting thing to note there um, so not only is Mr. Cellophane modeled after Bert Williams, but the song is very specifically modeled after, uh, Williams, most famous songs, a song called Nobody, um, from a show called Abyssinia, which is so famous at the time that, I mean, it sold like a, an astronomical number of albums and, uh, basically Bert Williams had to perform it every time he ever did anything for the rest of his life. It was one of those kind of songs. So, uh, instead of just diving into Mr. Cellophane and kind of analyzing it in the way I normally do, I I'm going to just spin a little bit through Mr. Cellophane a little faster, but first I'm going to play you a little chunk of nobody. So you can really see where a lot of Mr. Cellophane came from, because it's really fun to hear the predecessor of this song, because you, there's so much in it of, um, you know of nobody I mean it, it really they they really have done a very smart job of taking like you can hear a little licks you can hear different chords you can you can hear the whole style of it is very similar so let's hear a little bit of chunk a little chunk of nobody by Burt Williams
3: when life of clouds and rain, and I am full of nothing and pain, who
2: soothes my thumping, thumping brain,
3: nobody, when winter comes with snow and fleets, and me with hunger and cold feet, who says
2: here's 25 cents? Go ahead and get something to eat. Nobody. But. but I ain't ever done nothing no more. I'll be right back. I ain't ever done nothing no more. Um, sometime, never do for nobody, no time.
1: see you can hear it right all right so let's hear a little bit of Mr cellophane mm-hmm.
3: If someone stood up in a crowd and raised his voice up way out loud and waved his arm and shook his leg, you'd notice him. If someone in the movie show yelled, fire in the second row, this whole place is a powder keg, you'd notice him. And even without clucking like a hen Everyone gets noticed now and then Unless, of course, that person it should be Invisible, inconsequential Me Cellophane, Mr. Cellophane should have been my name Mr. Cellophane cause you can look right through me walk right by me and never know I'm there I tell you cellophane Mr. Cellophane should have been my name Mr. Cellophane cause you can look right through me walk right by me and never know i'm
1: there so you can see a lot of the overlap there um it's the same sort of story song uh he's giving these little examples of uh well what what if this happened who's doing this nobody you know And, uh, Mr. Cellophane is doing the same, like what, well, if this happened, you would notice that guy, right? Yeah. You know, it's got that same kind of sad sack, um, melancholy. It's very droopy. It's got the, even the instrumentation with the sort of like wah-wah, um, brass, the wah-wah trumpets and, and sad trombones, literally, (laughs) Um, so it's, it's right. It's all right there. I mean, it's really so clever the way that they've done this and, and the fact that the song exists on its own, even if you don't know nobody and don't know Bird Williams, um, is really just like, it's almost like become an Easter egg a little bit, where if you, uh, you can assume that most of the audience does not know this song, does not know this performer, um, and have no, no problem at all, just understanding the song. So, Let's keep going with Mr. Cellophane. You can hear a little bit more about how that song works.
3: Suppose you was a little cat residing in a person's flat who fed you fish and scratched your ears. You'd notice him. Suppose you was a woman wed. And sleeping in a double bed Beside one man for seven years You'd notice him A human being's made of more than air With all that bulk you're bound to see him there Unless that human being next to you is unimpressive, undistinguished. You know who should have been my name, Mr. Cellophane, because you can look right through me, walk right by me and never know i'm there.
1: So this song is actually split up between two different little scenes. This this second verse happens after Billy Flynn has pointed out that there's no possible way that Amos could be the father of this child and uh prompted Amos to promise to divorce Roxy, which of course is all Billy Flynn's plan to get uh sympathy for Roxy. Um and cast Amos as the sort of villain and Roxy as the sad wronged uh, beautiful woman. Um, So now we're hearing a little bit more of uh, a little tiny bit of passion, but even then, it's not. It doesn't start that way, right? He starts out with like you're a little cat sitting on someone's lap. So he's kind of gone from like the guy in the fire in the theater who's who's warning everybody and nobody listens to him, to but like you're just a lovable little creature that that should be loved, basically. And nobody pays attention to you. Um, and then, of course, it becomes more specific. You are a man who's who's shared a bed with someone for seven years, right? He's talking specifically about his life and Roxy here. Um, and then I love this thing that happens in this verse where he doesn't sing the first lines of Cellophane, Mr. Cellophane. The music continues without him, really. He has a moment where... The song is just going on and it doesn't really matter whether he's singing it or not. And after that, that seems to kind of prompt him to uh, do what he's going to do now. I tell you, cellophane, Mr. Cellophane,
3: should have been my name, Mr. Cellophane. Because you can look right through me, or walk right by me. No, I'm there, never, even, no, I'm there.
1: Hope I didn't take up too much of your time. So even though the song is a pastiche and uh, obviously referencing uh, this other style, this other performer, this is what's so brilliant about this song too is so once Amos has that little verse where he kind of gets into himself and, and manages to take the stage and you can hear him really kind of owning this and, and digging in and it just becomes this really fun a um, little bit angry number we see a side of amos that we don't really get to see usually um the orchestration does this amazing thing where like the, just as before the music was playing without amos singing now amos is singing his big not big lo- note which is like obviously the the big power moment for him and the band like forgets to come back in for him you know it's it's such a funny sad moment of like ultimate his ultimate powerful moment is still so weak that the band forgets he's there it just illustrates completely um his entire point of the song and then it comes back down to that very sad violin um that little meek moment again and he uh sings that really killer final line which is just so heartbreaking you know, I hope I didn't take up too much of your time. This this poor character who's just been dumped on by everybody and just manipulated by everybody gets his one moment in the spotlight and then feels guilty that he's taken up too much time. So it just really is a, a complete illustration of of the the whole point of the song, um, which is great. And also, we get—I mean, I haven't mentioned this yet, but I should—the the idea, the image of Mister Cellophane um, is so good it's so good and illustrative right it's it's not just nobody can see me I'm invisible it's such an imaginative way to put that so we have that additional layer in this song of like uh, Amos gets this kind of oddly beautiful artistic moment of describing himself Um, is it probably a little tiny bit of a cheat yeah sure cellophane wasn't like was sort of around in the 20s but not really to the degree that probably this character would would know that reference i think but um who cares we don't care nobody cares that's fine um that's just me being a pedantic dramaturg. i seriously don't care about that stuff like it doesn't matter it's such a good wonderful image of like you know plastic wrap and him being just made out of this complete nothingness um that it just we just love him so much for this song, and it just breaks our heart, and uh, does everything we need it to do. So, so really good illustration again of Candor and Ebbs' brilliance for uh, writing songs that are both pastiche, but also like exactly what kind of musical theater songs um, illustrate the characters that are singing them and ex- illustrate that plot moment. So, uh, really cool song, love it.
0: And that brings us to one of our favorite segments. How do you solve a problem like Maria?
2: How do you solve a problem like Maria?
0: Where we talk about some of the issues with the show, both internally and externally. So I think it's a great place to start um, to chat about the there's like this internal battle, I think, in the show Um between like joy and cynicism like the score is so joyful and it's partially because it's a a pastiche of a style and and all this stuff but there is like there is a lot of fun i think inherent in the show and yet it is fundamentally illustrating a very cynical point of view and so uh, kind of as you alluded to with like the costumes of it all um for the revival and like the original having like a vaudevillian kind of like look about it but then this like Fussy, dark, cynicism, sexy kind of thing, and like that juxtaposition and the conflict of those styles. The revival kind of does away with the vaudevillian aspect of the show in some ways, like both visually and in how it's choreographed. Um, keeps it obviously in the style of like high performance with its like bandstand set and 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 the that kind of you know it, it still embraces it. But I'm curious what your feelings are on how you know is one road better than the other i mean there's something to be said for the fact that this revival has run for like 20 plus years right like 25 years almost um and is a massive hit and yet like is it really doing a full interpretation of the piece chicago i'm not exactly sure like it is kind of and that it's come to embody fossey is so fascinating because it's not it's not like it's, oh, like recreating his original work. It's just all the things that have, you know, we've come to know about him and his style. Um, And somewhat, I guess, influenced by like the movie, All That Jazz, which is partially about Fosse's experience doing all his creative projects, but particularly Chicago. Um, So I'm just curious for your point of view on that as, as how you like marry those two things that are kind of in conflict with each other inside of the piece.
1: Well, it's really interesting because I think I think there's a lot going on here. First of all, I think it's so fascinating that this show was written so specifically to be a pastiche of different vaudevillian performers. Because now we are far enough away from vaudeville that I, I feel confident in saying 97% of the people who see the show have no idea... Uh, any of the performers that they're probably referencing, like the Sophie Tucker, the like any of those people are now kind of out of our popular imagination that it's interesting that this show can can lose such a basic pillar of what it was constructed with and still be completely fine. Um, so that is kind of an interesting like I think that's a mark of the quality where it's like it's not relying too heavily on people's knowledge of those on those different people it's it's like the the vaudevillian element of it is enough in the dna of the show that to, to us it just reads as theatrical instead of specifically vaudevillian you know right which right. totally works for the message of the show because it's like wh- whatever kind of theater it is we understand the idea that like a, a trial is a performance you know and the performers are kind of aware of themselves as performers in the way that like you know People in the show are just turning to us and like doing their numbers, you know, in in a in a different way. So that's interesting. I mean, I think this show partially succeeds because, in terms of like the joy versus the cynicism, actually, because it so commits to the cynicism of it, because these people find joy in in there's there's the very little guilt in this show. You know, like, these people kind of really know who they are, which is actually something that I think makes it really easy to love characters. Um, You know, Billy Flynn knows exactly who he is. He does not care if you are innocent. He does not care if you are guilty. All he wants is $5,000, and he will make it happen for you, you know? And I think the movie added a little bit of an interesting flair on him, too, where even though he sings like all I care about is love and there's that sort of like coyness in that number where he like has you know he's stripping over the course of the number he's like remarkably sexless you know he is not a handsome man who feels motivated by sex at all like it feels like I think the movie adds a little moment where Roxy kind of flirts with him as potential payment and he's just like give me five thousand dollars like I don't I don't care
0: you know like he's he's almost like what are you doing yeah <laughs> like it's which is funny i it's a great point i didn't really thought about it
1: yeah yeah so it's like I, you have to admire that kind of thing about like that is a character who knows who he is he likes nice suits and money um and he has no moral quandary about his uh existence i think um at least none that we see uh velma's kind of similar you know i think she has we don't really see her having a lot of moments of like,, Ugh, what have I done? You know, which is why I think it's interesting to hear that Gwen Verdon was pushing for that moment because I do think it would have like really tipped the balance of the whole show. um because I think it's very specific that really the one moment where we really there's two moments in the show that we really care about someone. And one of them is Mr. Cellophane with Amos because he's just such a sad sack. I mean, um, and
0: how can you not love him? Like, I, yeah. I, can, you know, I just like want to give him a hug.
1: I know. And you just hope that he finds like a nice lady who's going to be there to to make him muffins and love him in the way that he deserves to be loved. And he's... that
0: he can love on and dote on in the way that he like yeah. that Roxy like doesn't deserve because yeah. she doesn't actually love him. You know, like what a totally. good soul, you know?
1: Yeah um but at the same time i think the show is clever because it it almost makes you like as much as you love him you also kind of have a little tiny tiny touch of contempt for him because he's so weak in this like dog eat dog world you know it's like you want him to go be safe in a different place but you're also like get out of this you know yeah you are he's such a dupe that you're a little bit like ugh, come on you're such a dupe um so it kind of plays with your emotions in that way um but, oh, so that's the first one, and the other one is obviously with the Hungarian woman who, uh, yeah. that moment, I mean, that moment really lands. Um, you know, and, and one of my favorite moments in construction in the whole show is the fact that she has her, you know, Hungarian rope trope, as they call it, and then you, right after, structurally, the scene where Roxy has said, like, whatever, I don't need you, you know, I'm a famous person now, and then it cuts right to Roxy, like in her dress, you know, like this is actually sort of, it's a, in some ways it's, it's an almost cinematic uh, script because they leave out things that you don't actually need, but you would think that the drama would have the scene where she's like, I, you know what, that scared me. I'm going to go back and do this. And, And you kind of get that, but you've, but you get it enough in the scene where she's already leapt past that to like, okay, we're all back on track, you know? We don't need to see that. We know what's happened. We know that because it scared us too. Because it's a moment of like, oh, someone you can die. You know, the, well, the are only really person, and, and
0: and again, the only person who's like, yeah, I'm not guilty. Like, yeah, it's like yeah. it is really a. I mean, it's horrible,
1: horrible. It is. It is. Any one of those women in the cell block tango probably would have deserved it, except for her. Right. Yeah, and also I think it's very clever that it's like that she doesn't speak English, so you don't really know what her story is. You know, like it's the it's kind of you are put in the place of the public yet again, where it's like, oh, I bet her story is really heartbreaking, but like I don't, I don't get it. So, you someone's got to
0: die, you know. Yeah. someone's got to hang. Like it's
1: Whoops. terrible. I don't, you know, don't understand. So it's like you know another layer of cynicism. Um, but yeah, so I think having that, having those characters so embrace their own dark purposes is actually a really effective. Uh, source of joy in the show because um, you can kind of get on board with their goals even though they're sort of despicable because if, if you were watching people who are like oh I feel bad I killed my husband but I really want to get off for my own reasons like if there was a little bit more psychology in this show and a little bit more like better people I think you would just it would be not much fun to watch and it's so fun to watch this show because i think you're just watching bad people kind of be bad and um and work a system that is happy to be worked
0: it's Um, it's funny you bring this up because we're also we're recording on the you know the weekend like memorial day weekend essentially before what succession will come to an end Um, and i've been thinking a lot about succession and that's and again it's like bad people doing bad things but like they know that they're i mean they're a little bit more struggling with what is good and what is bad and and all that stuff but it is painful to watch on a certain level whereas like this is not painful to watch because i think it's a great point that you raise like because yeah we it's it's like the um i'm thinking about like house of cards too where like uh you know problematic kevin spacey like kills that dog in the first episode that's been hit by a car. And it's like, oh, you think I'm terrible, don't you? But someone's right. got to do this. And like, I know that I can do that. And like, whatever. And you're like, oh, I love to watch you be bad. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's like fun. Like, it's kind of fun to watch a villain be a villain and know that they're a villain. right? Yeah, Like it is fun to watch. It's fun. And like, Roxy is a great example of that. Like, and what I think, so I'm going to use this to segue a little bit to what I think is so interesting about the movie adaptation that I think I would absolutely say is one of the at least easy top five stage to movie adaptations in terms of success and like quality. I think it's a really, yeah. really good movie. Agreed. But it does take some of that out of it. It does add a little bit more question as to like, is Roxy going to be a good person and, like, come to terms with some of this at the end of it and, like, go back. Like, it does in adding in some narrative where you talk about it being cinematic and it's, like, this the musical being cinematic. In some ways, like, the movie takes it and, like, I don't even want to say hyper-realizes it. But, like, even the opening sequence, like, you know, we know in the movie we know that Velma has just committed a crime and she's going to get like arrested. Like we there, there's a little bit more story eggs that it like, or story beats that it drops in that don't exist in the, in the musical. And I'm wondering, like I, as much as I love the movie for what it is, when we're talking about the musical, I feel like it, it's such an interesting, like, I'm, I do want to say the word quandary, but it's such an interesting experiment to me because there it is a very successful adaptation and yet like it is quite different from the show. And, and I don't know that it would work as well if you just like dropped that movie on stage. You know what I mean? I, that's kind of what I was going to say. It's like, I'm just not sure that it would like, in some ways my impulse would be my personal impulse would be to do a little bit more of the movie on stage, but I don't know that it actually would work. Like, I think you're right in that, like, it's kind of like, let's be terrible, blatantly terrible kind of character choices do make it fun in a way that like the, you know, the script supports and the script kind of doesn't support humanizing them a little bit more.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I think the movie, I agree, it's it's a really fantastic uh, adaptation. And I think what makes the movie so smart is that it like i i think what makes the movie successful and i think what makes the movie smart is that it is a very i mean it's ironic because i said that you know the musical is cinematic and now i'm going to say that the movie is theatrical yes no but um, it is
0: it exactly i think you're exactly right that's yeah, yeah that's the succinct way to say what i was trying to say
1: yeah but like the, the movie did not ever lose sight of the fact that this is a presentational vaudevillian like there is a sort of narrator figure there is a sort of like it is a show that is being done for you about uh, an american judicial system which is about putting on a show for you you know like the the use of theatrical devices in that movie is what makes it i think really successful and they they you're right i think they did flesh out those those stories just enough that you get a little bit more without tipping the balance to being like oh but she had a bad childhood and that's why she did you know like it it doesn't it just makes gives you a little bit more of what's already there as opposed to giving you uh like additional stuff you know i think it, it gives you it just like Enriches rather than being like, but also we have to do this, um, right? Which is very smart because I think a lot of a lot of adaptations, fa- adaptations fail because they feel like, oh well, let's let's dive into the backstory, let's do the psychiatry, let's you know, let's do that. And I I think,
0: see seeing the Wicked film, see seeing the Wicked film. I mean, just kidding, all, kidding. All we don't know. Two, we haven't seen all it. All two
1: parts. of All it. two parts of it. Um, all two parts. Yeah, but but also like I think it just it adapts very well because. it it is such a specific and contained world. Like, I think the reason that Chicago succeeds where Into the Woods does not succeed as a film adaptation for me, frankly, is like, you know, Into the Woods is not an inherently theatrical uh, show in the same way Chicago is an inherently theatrical show. And in terms of like being like the presentational vaudevillian aspects of it. And I found myself watching that movie being like, wait, where's the town? You know, like there are things about Into the Woods that live on stage very well because you understand that it's a show, but it's not telling you that it's a show that when you make it a movie, you have you ask those questions Mm -hmm. and the movie was not able to make us avoid those questions. But in Chicago, um, the show itself kind of bypasses a lot of those questions in the way that it's done, which makes it uh, a successful transfer, I think. Um, Yeah, I mean, it's such a good movie. (laughs)
0: It's really good. it's a great movie, and I, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to spend the entire podcast talking about the movie, but it is such a good, it is one of those, like, I feel like because it is such a good movie, that is part of the reason it is still running so successfully on Broadway yeah. is because, like, it has heightened, it, like, it took the, it took this Broadway property and made it, like, monoculture, you yeah. know, like, thing, and did it very, very well, and to your point, very theatrically, which I, like, it is yeah. a very theatrical movie, and yet, like, yeah, it's an interesting. It's just an interesting split and dichotomy that, like, yeah, you know, the most successful version of the show itself took away all that glitz and took away so much of that glamour. And yeah, you know, it's a, it's such an interesting piece to me that it exists um so separately, and I think yet so successfully in both iterations, and yeah. even like, and even you could say the original. Like, you know, in the Fosse of it all, like he, you know, wanted to do this Vaudevillian 20 show without leaning into the flapper image, without leaning into the Charleston and like taking all of that away and stripping all that away and making it more like sexy and dangerous than that period had come to be remembered as. And I, I it's it's, anyway, it's a deeply interesting piece to me that it can be interpreted In those different mediums or different productions in such successful ways
1: yeah absolutely and and you're right i think it's a a very interesting symbiotic relationship because i think both art forms owe a lot to the other you know Mm -hmm. like they yeah but i think both the stage and the screen succeed because they borrow a lot from the other Mm -hmm. and and that's kind of a rare thing
0: are we glamorizing life behind bars
1: i mean no
0: I don't no think so. i don't think so at all like yeah i don't think i'm like oh let me go commit a felony like yeah no.
1: also like fred casley is also a horrible person <laughs> like
0: yeah they're all horrible
1: they're all horrible there's no good people in this show
0: but it is funny like because even like the movie by providing that little bit of justification that like oh he's going to help get her into show business yeah. it's like oh yeah, yeah yeah totally like yeah of course she slept with him and then i'm like well of course she killed him but i don't want her right. to get in trouble for it even though right. she should get in trouble for it yeah renee zellweger is also so they're all so fucking good that. like every single one of them is so good uh katherine zeta
1: jones talk about a role uh, you're born to play and when she was
0: pregnant doing it while yeah. she was so pregnant amazing incredible yeah. icon we stand um yeah I guess the only other maybe thing to talk about and this is like we're circling around it um but I do think it's really interesting that like Fosse does come from that old world musical comedy kind of like the the end of vaudeville and he did have a time in his life when he was performing in vaudeville and yet he ran away from that so much in the like and now that's like not what he's known for at all and yet he was like the original choreographer of How's the Business and Dan yeah. Yankees and all these like really like, you know, good old fashioned musical comedy, satire things. And yet we know him for the much like, you know, darker, cynical, um, sexy, dangerous work that he did later on in his career. And I guess I'm, you know, I guess is there ever a time that you feel like Chicago is too dark as a show or doesn't quite like align itself. Like, I, I don't know. That's not really a good question, but I, and I don't even know what to say on the posse of it all other than I just think it's really interesting that like the show is rooted in that DNA and yet it really doesn't. Um, yeah. It just is. So I guess a part of it.
1: The only thing I would say is that I think it's a good lesson um, that you know, I mean, there's the line in the in the uh, revival of Flower Drum Song to love, no, to create what, you, what is new, you must love what is old, basically. And I, I, I think that you see that happen a few times where it's like the people who ended up really being game changers of really any industry, but especially, you know, theater, since we're talking about theater, like it's almost never the people who kind of storm in and they're like, musicals are stupid. I'm going to change everything. You know, it's always the people who have like a deep love and this form is in their DNA and they, they really appreciate and understand what the, what shows are, what musicals are, what their predecessors have done um, and work in that medium and then branch off into doing something that is entirely their own. Um, And I think you just see that a lot. And you also see people who come in and go <laughs> musicals are dumb. I'm going to, I'm not going to make a musical. It's going to be out of this thing. And then, you know, that doesn't work almost ever. Um, so I think that, you know, in, in the Fosse of it all, that I, that's what I would say about that. Um, and in terms of whether it, it is too dark, you know, I think, let me just say, I think this show just ends at exactly the right time <laughs> because Yeah, that's I, true. I feel like, you know, I feel like nowadays, just allows you to sort of like revel in these two characters, uh, getting what they wanted in such a kind of like safe way, because you are loving them performing for you. Um, And, it feels like a triumph for them, even though it's sort of in this weird theatrical world where it's like, what, what even is that, you know? And I think the movie has, get does that well too, where it's like you can't quite tell if that's really like their headlining tour or if it's sort of like still something that exists in their head. Um, so I think if it, I think if it was a touch more realistic at the end, then we might not feel as good about it. But the fact that it is sort of, it embraces that theatricality of the ending um, for the Hot Honey Rag, is you know just allows us to be like yeah fun these characters
0: i mean also because vaudeville's like about to die spoiler alert to the two of them
1: (laughs) yeah (laughs) they're about to be
0: in a dying art form which you know i never really thought about but that's yeah you know certainly a dark end you could take with the show
1: but see the show is brilliant for never making you realize that either which is like you know like how long are they even if they do have a successful tour like how many years can they run that thing like one year you know this is not the ending for them this is a at best to sort of like stopgap measure until they figure out the next thing but it's okay because you can just like enjoy the hot honey rag and be like yay
0: it's true also lol gwen verdon being so not to be ageist but like old uh yeah at playing that character which like because Cheetah rivera is probably what like mm, Cheetah rivera was probably like 40 when she did it but gwen verdon is yeah. like you know she was 50 I looked oh, she was fifty. Okay, I thought she was. Yeah. I thought she was even older than that. So maybe no, no, I recant. She's I recant that. I was thinking she yeah. was closer to closer to like sixty.
1: Well, that is an interesting part of the show too. Is that maybe because it was Gwen Verdon, but it's built into the DNA of the show that Roxy is someone for whom this dream has either faded or is fading. You know, um, that she's old enough that when she says the line, "I'm older than I ever intended to be." you understand that she's like not going to be able to get a job as a Corrine anymore, probably. Um, and it's interesting too, because like the whole baby plot takes on a slightly different cast. If you have someone for whom that's like less realistic, you know? Um, but in reality that, that cat, that woman was 23 when she killed her lover. So, so the, the origin of it is a very different story. Um, but it, that show has been created with two women who are uh, middle-aged, you know and so it's an interesting question as to how much that is part of that show or how malleable it is because i've seen both like melanie griffith play roxy where she kind of feels like she is roxy in that same sort of like blinking eye like innocence about not really having any idea who she is um i mean that was a whole experience i've also seen ashley simpson play that part when she was like 25 years old and so when she says the line i'm older than i ever intended to be you're like you what (laughs) right right you know and and so it's interesting and i think a lot of that is the balance between those two women um you know do i like it when it's 20 20 something no i don't think it works as well as when it's someone who is for whom the the stakes of the dream are higher Um, But, you know, I mean, this is an interesting conversation that's happening in theater right now, I think. Like, you know, Nicole Scherzinger was just announced to play Norma Desmond uh, in Sunset Boulevard in London. She is 44 and she is like an astonishingly hot woman. Like Norma Desmond is usually played by someone who's old enough that the idea that she would play an ingenue is laughable to have... You know, it's interesting. I mean, I think musical theater is interesting because it started out as an as an industry where middle aged women played ingenues like Mary Martin and Ethel Merman were, playing, you know, and now it's become a yet another industry where 20 somethings play middle aged parts. Um, And that is an interesting question with this show as to whether whether you have that flexibility or whether it it just doesn't make as much sense when you have younger women playing those parts as it does when they're slightly older.
0: Yeah, it's it's really interesting too also just to think about the revival and like part of the reason it has run for so long is they've done a fantastic they've stunt cast quite a bit and I, I I don't use that I think they do a good job of stunt casting right like in terms of getting the interesting personalities to fill really seemingly it's it's mostly Roxy and or like Mama Morton are where they where they stunt cast but they have kept the show alive and fresh doing that and certainly expanded the definition of who can play those parts, I think because of their kind of continual flexibility on on who might be interesting and sell a ticket or get returning people into seats. I mean, the list yeah. of people who have done it is like, I mean, it just goes on and on and on. Like it goes on and on and on who has gone into Chicago for various stretches. Yeah. So, it's interesting. Mm. And that will bring us to our favorite things.
3: These are a few of my favorite things.
0: Where we talk about some of our favorite things in Chicago or about Chicago, I guess. Um, so Annika, what is your favorite song in Chicago?
1: Oh, it's such a good score, but there's really only one answer for this for me, which is the cell block tango. Cicero.
0: Lipschitz. I was literally listening to it on the way from work to record this. I know every word of that every intonation every like it just exists in such a deep part of my soul so I love that you picked it
1: it's so good because also like I mean god it's so sexy and fun you just want to be one of those women so badly but also like the jokes are very solid in that in that number I mean he ran into my knife 10 times is used to just is just amazing so funny
0: it's so good. And then we all learned, you know, our own version of Hungarian to speak along with that poor woman. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Roboto. Like literally, what am I doing? No, no, Hungarian. Don't know what she's saying, but I speak along with it. Like I know. So yeah,
1: we know in our hearts. What about you? What's your favorite song?
0: So I got to give it to, um, we both reached for the gun. I think it is such a great number. I love it so much. Um that, yeah, the, the entire build, the merry sunshine of it all, like I I think it's such a such a fantastic number. I really, really love it. So that's, uh, yeah, I spend a lot of that's that song occupies a large part of my like psyche and what I love about musical theater. I don't know what that says about me, but I think it's such a great number.
1: It is a great number. and also the the puppet element of it is just yes,
0: it's it just so good.
1: Elevates it in such a funny, funny way.
0: So good. Velma, my choo-choo jump the truck i give my life to bring him back come on so good so, good. Uh, so who's your favorite character in chicago
1: I, I mean how can you not love velma i feel I like know, Velma. how
0: can you not she's the one she's the best she's this yeah. yeah yeah she's
1: the she's the killer dealer i mean i i don't it's funny because i don't really like roxy i just i just don't like her as a character i mean like i and i think and which is not to say I don't think she's a good character. I just don't, you know, love her in the way that I love Velma, which I think goes back to that sort of like Velma just knows who she is.
0: I think also I do I do kind of enjoy I mean, I would enjoy all the characters, but I I do special shout out to Mama Morton, who also yes. has a great song. And like I I do I do love a solid Mama Morton. So they're yeah, there are but there are reasons to love every all the characters, but I think yeah, Velma has to be the answer.
1: Yeah, I think so.
0: So, what's your favorite miscellaneous thing about Chicago?
1: Oh, you know, there's so many things I really like. I I do love, as I mentioned, uh, the many many ways the show kind of ignores Amos and forgets he's there. I mean, it's so clever. um I I really love some of the costume moments. Um, But I think I think my I'm going to give it to a script moment in this uh, in this segment. I think it's so, so brilliant that they don't say whether she's guilty or not. That I think it goes so effectively to the point of the whole show that they're about to say, like, we find the defendant and then like some other killer comes along and it just completely sideswipes the whole thing and including roxy's attention i think i just think that's so that scene is so brilliant where it's like yeah well you're acquitted and she doesn't care like i think in terms of like the the cinematic nature of the show uh the like the editing is very effective and that cut if you will is just great so i'm gonna give it to that it's
0: interesting you bring that up too because like only because i you know read the chunk of fossey like the biography by Sam Wasson, right? Um yeah, who like and he was in the midst of editing a movie as he was doing this show and he was kind of said he was like catapulted into the world of film and like took off and was so good at it. It's so interesting that like that you talk about editing because I'm that has so much to do with him, I'm sure, in yeah. terms of like, oh we don't need that. You don't need it. Get rid of it. Get rid of it. Which that is not always the best way to collaborate as there were lots of like fights about that. But it is a really, really good point.
1: Yeah. So what's your favorite moment?
0: So it's funny you bring up the Amos ignoring thing. Cause my favorite thing, I love the way that Mr. Cellophane ends the like, I'm sorry if I've wasted any of your time. Like I always I just love that. I love that for some reason. Um, I also partially because like I think back to like what an epic like if you use that song as an audition song, what an epic end to your audition to like do like never even know I'm there and then just like be like, sorry, I wasted any, if I wasted any of your time and just like walk out the room. Like what a great mic drop but also i just i just think it's a really lovely i i i don't know i i love that song but i I love that it ends that way like in that like simple small moment of like yeah complete humble humility
1: so good um can i give an honorable mention too yes
0: please of course
1: oh my god the moment at the very top with all that jazz when they come up and they're all in that formation yes oh chills
0: i mean all that jazz also obviously an iconic number and my uh, my honorable mention will be just that jazz boom yeah like just that just that jazz boom so good so good and that means it's time for our penultimate segment corner of the sky gotta
1: find my
2: corner
3: of the sky
0: where we talk about this show's place in the musical theater canon. So uh, I'm going to go as, Hey, it's a quintessential Candor and Ev. It's quintessential Fosse. um, And we have a revival that's been running for, you know, 25 years, almost 30 years. I, I, beyond that, like it is, it's become synonymous with Broadway and, and like all that jazz is basically like a Broadway anthem at this point. Like I, I, it's hard to, think beyond like what its place in the canon is because it is it is one of those introductory shows that like get people into Broadway, get people into musical theater. Um uh but yeah what about what do you think? What do you think it's its place in the canon?
1: I mean, yes, everything you said, certainly. And and such an interesting, I think, I don't think we've done a show whose role in the canon has changed so dramatically um from its original production to its revival. Uh I, I mean I think Everything you said, certainly quintessential Fossey. I think also um just the just really the anti-hero. This is really probably the most anti-hero show I can think of, um, in terms of just embracing that that kind of darkness and cynicism. Um, and as you said, like finding the joy in it. Cause when I think of the other shows that also are dark you know like something like cabaret you still have your access point which is your you know your Cliff your sort of like um person who is us or you know even like assassins where I think it's doing a, a slightly different thing with those people um with mm-hmm. all of those characters so this one I think has you have to give it that particular corner and also I'm going I mean now I'm just rambling about different things that make Chicago cool but I think the theatricality of it and the, the narrator the use of the the almost MC. brechtian i'm gonna just yeah. say brechtian because yeah. no it is Brecht, the, it that's is brechtian. The thing that comes up,
0: that comes up a lot in when you read about it it is very brechtian
1: yeah and i think it's i mean one of the most brechtian things about it is that it's it doesn't really let you uh totally engage with these people and it doesn't let them off the hook i think um which is which is brechtian so uh yeah so i say all those things i mean it's it's such a good show it's just such a good show <laughs>
0: It really is, and I th- I'm i glad you brought up the Brechtian point because I I kind of avoided it because I feel like anytime I hear the word Brechtian, I suddenly feel like I'm back in school. But it is a very successful, and it's part of the argument that Jerry Orbach made as to why to not do an orgy and Razzle Dazzle. He's like, it's taking you out of the Brechtian element. Like you gotta, you yeah, gotta add that, and that is it is a very good example of that in a way that doesn't feel like it. It doesn't feel, yeah, it manages to be Brechtian without feeling preachy, which is kind of the point of Brechtian. But it has those elements to it, so.
1: Yeah, 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 no. And I, I'm also glad that they didn't do a orgy on the courthouse.
0: I mean, showbiz is so much more fun than an orgy. Pull that
1: it truly is. There you go. <laughs> 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 but what about a showbiz? But what about a showbiz orgy?
0: Oh, it's called Summer Stock. Okay, and but jokes. That brings us to what comes next. What comes next? where Annika gives us a clue about the next show we'll be getting to know. So Anika, what is our clue for the next show that we'll be putting in the spotlight as it used to be called?
1: This show holds the Broadway record for the longest time between numbers.
0: Which is, this is like potentially my favorite Broadway fun fact. I think it's pretty well known. I maybe, but maybe it's not. Maybe it's just because I say it all the time, but annika you did not know it
1: i did not know that nope makes sense but i did not know that
0: so sound off in the comments so that wraps it up we will see you next time bye everyone bye everyone